Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are special projects editor Asa Christiana, yo, yo. senior editor Matt Kenny, What's up? and two special guests this week, that's right, two, Chicago attorney John Bell, who represented Ryobi One World Technology in a recent table saw injury lawsuit, and saw stop inventor Steve Gass. More on that coming up. Uh, but first, before we move on, Remember to spread the word about this podcast to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page and leave a comment, maybe even a sweet five-star rating if you feel we merit it. You sweet. Can, you can even stop by our iHeartRadio page. Um, so, folks, uh, one more uh, bit of uh, housekeeping to take care of. Every time you say sweet five-star sweet rating, I five think. star uh, rating. Make yourself a dang quesadillo <laughs> from uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Okay, let me <laughs> pot Matt's microphone down a bit now. <laughs> Was that too loud? Quesadillo. Quesadillo. Um, so we still have the Creative Cabinetry Contest going on FineWoodworking.com. Um, if you go to the homepage and you just scroll down a bit to the special sections area, you'll see a little Enter Now button. Um, we've got about 50 entries so far. Keep them coming, folks. You can win. Um, there's a Craig K5 jig involved. There's some copies of Mark Edmondson's Pocket Hole Joinery book and uh, a Fine Woodworking DVD archive. Every you can issue, become a Pocket Hole Joinery article. whiz. I wonder if they have a K2 wizard. jig. I, I would imagine that was the second jig they released. Just, well, That's gonna... one you use to when you're uh, mountain climbing to put in like That's little right. ice anchors and stuff. Because the most the dangerous, the most deadly mountain... In mountaineering is K2. Right. I, I thought it was wondering. Everest. No, K2 is far more difficult oh, to climb. Oh, you've climbed both of these? Yes, I have. These hills? You'd think companies would avoid, <laughs> then, avoid K2 as a marketing. Right. As a I was just curious. All right. Well, listen, um, little announcement, little explanation. This week, we're not answering your questions. That's right. We're asking questions. <laughs> we're asking the questions, people. Uh, we will answer questions. We'll be back to the regular podcast uh, on the next episode. So don't worry. Uh, we've been banking all of your questions in the Shop Talk Live inbox. But And this one's even better. So. This one's better. Okay. This is. Let me get my breaking news theme uh, out for this. So here's the deal. There was yet another table saw injury liability lawsuit that concluded in Duluth, Minnesota in October, I believe. Yeah, there was a uh, verdict. There have been 200 of these similar cases. Oh, and hold on. Before yep. I continue, Matt just reminded me, uh, we had a shout out to Shop Talk Live listeners who visited oh. yes. Mr. Kenny Yeah, last recently. week, uh, two listeners stopped by the office uh, to say hello, Alec and Kate, uh, who live over in New Jersey right now. They listen. Uh, well, Alec listens to the podcast all the time while they're driving, and I believe he forces Kate to also <laughs> listen to it because he's driving. So you know that will rule. Whoever's driving gets control of the radio. Um, so just hello. There you go. Yeah. Hello, Alec and Kate. Yeah. It must be this really disjointed flow to the show that really sold them as fans. Absolutely. Well, she said that Kate says she also very much liked the show. She said that I was by far the most uh, no, charming and funny she never said that. on the show. No wonder that, that you decided to invite them to come and see. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow. So just kiss Matt's butt and you can come down and visit us here. <laughs> right. Back to the case out of Duluth. So here's, let me set the scene here. Uh, young woodworker by the name of Adam Thull, was injured while cutting some cherry panels. He cut his forearm by yeah, reaching yeah. over the blade, yeah. and he sued Ryobi One World Technologies for having created a product that was, quote, defective or unreasonably dangerous. Did he asked for $6.4 I think in fairness to this, I, I think we should, it wasn't just he was reaching over the blade. The, there was a piece of wood that was falling off his outfeed table. As I just he said. Had, actually falling yes, off, it was falling it was, off the back of the saw. 
There was no outfit table. No, there was an outfit table. There was. I don't. No, no, no. There was none because he couldn't. No, there was. Yes, there was. and that's okay. why he didn't have his blade guard attached. Correct. That's because right. Because the blade guard yes. would have interfered with the outfit table. Now he so, could have. Not notched, to dive in too quickly. The you can, if you have a blade guard assembly, just for you folks out there, you should keep your bl- your splitter for sure always on your saw whenever humanly possible. And if it's sticking out the back and you can't put an outfeed table on your saw, don't remove the guard. Notch the outfeed table. But anyway, moving on. And the other thing is, people, don't reach your arms over a spinning table saw blade. Right. Yeah. You just don't do in it. In any case, with the Ever. blade cover on there. No piece of wood is worth it. Uh, so anyhow, yeah. Ryobi was found not guilty. Now, since the ears of a lot of woodworkers have really been zeroing in on table saw injury uh, suits ever since the now infamous uh, Carlos Osorio case out of Boston several years ago, you can look that up if you're not familiar with it, uh, we felt this story was begging to be looked into. So there's been a great debate regarding all of these liability suits, and there's lots of talk even, you know, about how, you know, implementing uh, saw-stop-style uh, saw safety uh, innovations. And so we decided to approach Ryobi's lead trial attorney, John Bell. He's from a firm uh, called Johnson & Bell. And we decided to approach saw-stop inventor Steve Gass to get both sides of the story and, you know, some information on the broader issue. Um, and two sides to this story there most certainly are. The news hook here, just to be clear, is that since the Carlos Osorio case, um, which was the one that got all of this started, where um, basically the guy won a very big settlement um, because he, he was got, ripping without a rip fence? Well, because the <laughs> saw had no safety. I don't believe it was Osorio. It was the insurance, insurance company. company. That they that subrogated. Had, yeah, True. Anyway, there was a huge award made in that case. The table saw manufacturers, Ryobi and One World Technologies, or their parent company, they uh, had to pay out a large sum of money um, because their saw was deemed, I suppose, uh, unreasonably... Unreasonably dangerous. Unreasonably dangerous. There's a legal threshold here. Now, that set off a bit of a controversy because of the way the guy was using the saw, not even a rip fence. Forget about the safety gear i think the guy also didn't even have the rip or did he have the rip fence on there i think I'm not he was sure. making a rip cut without the rip fence. without the rip fence and without a splitter without anything and he ended up shockingly getting hurt <laughs> shockingly. and uh so but anyway as you might imagine you know part of the case was that there's saw stop on the market i mean that was a big part of this initial case is that there's a company that makes a table saw where if this guy was using it he wouldn't have gotten hurt and so Saw stops a part of the story, and the news hook that just happened um, is that there was there there've been two hundred or so of these ca- similar cases filed. Um, the, the thing that just happened is that uh, I guess early on we learned during these interviews you're going to hear we learned early on that there was uh, that the table saw manufacturers did win one of the early cases, but it was overturned on appeal. Right. So that's you're going to hear. So John Bell is Ryobi's attorney. Uh, in this latest case, the Thole case. And you're going to be b- hear Bell referring to two previous cases during the course of this interview, Stallings and Stallings II. So Bell uh, got a victory for his clients That's the news in hook. Stallings. That's, uh, but, yeah, go ahead. But that victory, that not guilty verdict for Ryobi, was overturned in what we call Stallings II. Right. Um, so, but, the re- but we're missing the point here. The point is that 
the news that just happened, and the reason we're having him on the show is that they just got a guilt, they just got a not guilty verdict yeah. um, uh, recently. Yep. And, and that's why we're but, having and, him on the show. And it's the first not guilty verdict that's still standing. And, Correct. Yeah, in this newest case, we should also, I, I think it's important to point out that Sawstop technology really wasn't at the crux of the arguments being made. So it is really so, about the the blade guard assembly. Yeah, they're part of the general overall story, and that's partly why we're having them on. But um, it wasn't exactly blade breaking technology that was at the crux this time. So here he is, Ryobi Technologies, One World Technologies attorney John Bell, with our very own Asa Christiana. All right, I'm here with John Bell on the line. He's an attorney who recently represented a group of table saw manufacturers in a product liability case in Duluth, Minnesota. This is one of the 200-plus lawsuits that have been filed since Carlos Osorio won his famous claim against these same manufacturers. So first, hi, John, and welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Um, so before you took this case, um, were you at all aware of the the long background, the saga, as we were calling it before we went on the air, you know, going back to Steve Gass patenting the technology, blade-breaking technology? I uh, I tried the second lawsuit uh, uh, defending Ryobi after Osario. Okay. In 2012 here in, in federal court in Chicago. And Dr. Gass uh, testified as plaintiff's expert in that case. And so I spent two days cross-examining him, uh, and the jury got a good sense of who Dr. Gass was or is. Um, it was Dr. A, Gass yeah. basically told the jurors that uh, he's not in this for the money. He's in it to give a voice to uh, uh, table saw users that get injured by uh, defective and unreasonably dangerous table saws. Right. And in his opinion, every table saw that's been uh, sold in this country since he got his patents in the in 2000, is are defective and unreasonably dangerous. Only the saw stop saws are safe. And we want to tell our re, our listeners here, and our readers, and our web users, and our podcast listeners that we'll be sure to get uh, Steve Gass's perspective. Uh, you know, at, you know, obviously you're looking at it through the prism of Absolutely. where you're coming from, and so Absolutely. as journalists, you know, you understand we'll get both sides of the. Um, issue, but we're really interested to see, uh, to hear, um, yeah, all the lead up to this case and the particulars of this case. So there's a couple cases to talk about, but I really, I guess really the crux of the question is what's the, what is that razor's edge of like whether these things are being won or lost? What to you is the critical question or questions that this whole thing hinges on uh, when you first, between success and failure and convincing a jury? Um, what what uh, what's the real crux of the matter here? Because it's a complex web of issues. Yeah, there there is a complex web of issues, and 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 having won the Stallings case and then lost it, uh, I saw uh, what how the new these new attorneys came in. Uh, the Boy Schiller firm backed out after they lost Stallings. One, uh, a, a firm out of Dallas, Texas, is now uh, the lead trial counsel on all these cases. Uh, the firm is uh, Haygood, Orr, and Pearson. And the way they argued the case was they focused on the, uh, the 7th edition uh, of UL 987 a guarding system, which is a modular guarding system. Mm -hmm. And they focused on the fact that, that uh, 
the CPSC in the late 1990s was seeing a, a an uptick in the NICE, the National Electric uh, Injury Statistical Data System that the CPSC uses. Mm-hmm. They 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 see an uptick in in uh, table saw injuries because of the uh, increased popularity of of these reasonably priced table saws that you can get at Home Depot for 100 to 200 300 dollars. Right. And uh, so the the sales were were uh, picking up dramatically and and as a result of more sales you're you're getting statistically more people that get injured. Okay. And uh so they argued the case that the industry knows that uh that many users are not using the blade guard the traditional 3-in-1 blade guarding system. And uh, ultimately, uh, UL and the CPSC and, and PTI, the Power Tool Institute, uh, worked uh, in the early 2000s to come up with a an, an improved guarding system, which is now the seventh edition guarding system that was adopted in 2007, yep. which is a modular guarding system. I, I'm sure you're aware of it. Yeah, very, very much now. so. And that is super critical when it comes to table saw safety. And it's really been a big part of our story from the beginning that the old table saw guarding systems um, were so inconvenient that they ended up on the floor of your shop. And right. the newer ones, uh, the the riving knife, it's basically a European-style system made even more convenient in some cases. But basically, the low-profile riving knife anyway can stay on the saw through almost all yeah. operations. And when you do have to take it off, it pops. You can pops. take off parts of it. You can take off the hood guard right. or you, you can take off... Uh, the the, the uh, anti kickback uh, pawls and leave the riving knife on, and it, so th- that was the whole concept uh, right. was to make it more convenient to the user to put the guard back on when they're done with a non through cut where they've got to take the guard off. Sure. So how does that bear? How how does this play out in court when you're sort of? I'm guessing you're you're you would argue that uh, that. You know, it, for example, one of my questions is: in the Stallings case, and in the most recent case where you, where you did have you, the defendant uh, won, you got a victory for the defendant. Um, were they able to, like, what saw was being used? Was it an old timey saw? Was it one of the new ones with the better guarding it was systems? A, it, it was a, uh, it was a, a rigid uh, TS thirty six sixty that was UL certified in in the year two thousand and three. Mm-hmm. But it had elements of uh, a quick on-off guard. It's, right. it's a thumb screw uh, uh, arrangement that you can take the guard off and put it on in a matter of seconds. So it's no not tools. the it's not the very best, uh, newest um, iterations of these because they've really no, gotten much still, better. It was still a three-in-one guard, right? But you could take it on and and and, and uh, take it off and put it on without tools in in a matter of seconds. The right. way it was designed. So why do you? So was that the was that the key? That is that why you won the latest case? Uh, do you think? I, I, th- I think the the reason we won the latest cases is in in losing Stallings two the second uh, trial on Stallings. I saw how these attorneys were arguing the case, and they were confusing the jury as to what a manufacturer's legal duty is. A manufacturer under the law is has a duty to make a product that is not defective or unreasonably dangerous. The way they were arguing the case to the jury is that the seventh edition guarding system was safer than the three-in-one guarding system because uh, it was uh, more likely that the user would not take it off and leave it off 
and it was it's more flexible for the user to use, and therefore the industry knows that they're going to get a higher use of the guarding system on the on the seventh edition seventh edition saws. So the I believe the jury was confused as to the duty and felt that a manufacturer had a duty to make the product safer, when in fact any product can be made safer, and that's not a, that's not the legal duty. I asked the, the the judge in the Stallings two trial to give the jury an instruction on that, and he and, and he wouldn't give it. So I think there was some jury confusion in the Stallings two trial. We prevented that in the Thull trial by advising the court ahead of time that that's how a plaintiff's counsel is going to try to argue the case. And when they began that argument in opening statement, I objected, and the judge instructed the jury that that is not the duty of a manufacturer to make a product safer. The mm-hmm. duty of a manufacturer is to make a product that is not defective or unreasonably dangerous. Right. It's a different uh, legal standard. So Absolutely. And then I reminded yeah. the jury that they took an oath that they would follow the law as given by the judge, even if they disagreed with it. Yeah. And, and, and as a juror, you may disagree with what the law is, but you took an oath to follow the law. It's no different than if you are going out to buy an automobile today, you can buy accident avoidance technology on a Mercedes. Yeah. That doesn't mean that your Chevrolet without accident avoidance technology is defective and unreasonably dangerous. Likewise, when the seventh edition guarding system came out, and and there was a, a a consensus as as to going to the changing the UL standard from the sixth edition to the seventh, that change to the seventh edition didn't make the previous three in one guarding system defective and unreasonably dangerous. So really, it's still the system required by OSHA. Yeah, we we did talk. We've talked about that a lot in our coverage. Just when when it comes time to just give some context for folks, they do get confused. I mean, every automobile in the U.S. could be made safer by putting a NASCAR level roll cage in there and a neck and head restraint system that you would have to take twenty minutes to put on and would add a lot to the cost of the car. But it depends on what the legal standard is, you know, in in terms of what the automobile ma- manufacturer is responsible for. Yeah, and and my clients don't have the power of the government to criminalize uh, your failure to use your seatbelts in your car, which are safety devices. Right. Uh, But they, you can get a ticket for not wearing your seatbelts. So the government has a way of of forcing you to do something that many people don't want to do. They don't want to wear seatbelts. Right. Uh, Or wear helmets when they're riding a motorcycle. Right. So it sounds like in this case that. So far, in this specific uh, most recent case that you won, it sounds like that the the blade breaking technology wasn't the key question. It was really more about the newest uh, splitter, you know, table saw guard systems versus the last generation. Is that correct? Uh, yes, but but focusing on on the law, so the jury understands what it is they're being asked to do. Yeah, and so and I, I think that made a difference. Yeah. And so um, where did, how does this bear uh, going forward? Um, uh, well, one question is, I know that this is the, the second victory now for the defendants and really the first that's still standing. Um, have any other plaintiffs been successful uh, other than the two that the Stallings uh, plaintiff? The Osario case uh, the, was a plaintiff's verdict that was successful and yeah. the Stallings two uh, was a plaintiff's verdict. 
So just those two, there's been 200 plus filed, but just those two have made it to the point where there was a victory for the defendants. Um, the, your most recent victory, what do you think that, what effect do you think it'll have going forward on the, all well, these other I, lawsuits that are pending? I, I would hope that the other uh, table saw manufacturers would um, stand up and, and defend their product in a courtroom. Uh, because we're all uh, uh, complying with the industry safety standard, the UL 987 standard, which has been in effect since 1971. And the most recent, uh, 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 the seventh edition, has now got this modular guarding system. And I would hope that the, the industry would take Ryobi's lead and stand up and defend their product and defend their design. So on the on, on the UL standard, you feel like they're on firm legal ground to defend their products. Um, There's no question, because you, you can't sell a, a, a saw to a big-box retailer uh, without a UL certification. Yep. I mean, no, no uh, uh, Home Depot, Sears, Lowe's are, are going to buy your product unless you have a UL-certified product. Right. And every one of the table saws is UL-certified. Now, that's UL, which is a voluntary... Uh, which is the only uh, uh, safety standard uh, in the United States for table saws. Right. But the, the um, I don't know exactly where it stands. I haven't been following it recently and probably should have been. But the last we knew, uh, CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Committee, yeah. uh, com- Commission, was putting together a pending. They, set out, they, send out one, they sent out one of their notices of a pending propo- a proposal for a ruling. It's sort of a notice about a notice about a and possibility. And comments. About, they're looking for comments uh, from uh, people that are interested about yeah. w- what they're proposing. And, and that one specifically targets the blade-breaking technology. That's, that's correct. And that's so correct. how do you think that these lawsuits like yours and others that are out there will, will uh, affect that possible Consumer Product Safety Commission ruling, which would be, would, uh, which would be uh, another ruling, a government-sanctioned, basically, ruling about well, table saws, uh, right? CPSC is a branch of the government, right? and their mandate is not to make patented technology a part of the safety standard, the same as UL has a, has a, 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 a position that they will not make a patented technology part of the safety standard, because basically you're, you're, you're creating a monopoly for someone, right? Which and is giving what them we've, control yeah. of the entire industry. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the issues that we've raised a number of times when the CPSC issue has come up. So do you? Th- where do you think the CPSC ruling is headed? Well, as you know, the petition was filed in 2003. Mm-hmm. We are now in 2014. Yeah. Uh, what does that tell you? Uh, not, not it, it. I mean, on the face of it, it tells me that it's not going well. But not being an expert, I hesitate to answer that question. I don't know how long these things take. I, I have no context. Well, yeah, that, I'm that's just pleading true. ignorance. Uh, it, it it takes it takes it takes time. But because of uh, of Gas's particular strategy, um, he's he's got a he's got a a. a a patent, he's got a patent web, as they call it, of over 100 patents, where uh, anyone who is going to try to provide flush detection technology or accident mitigation technology is going to violate one of his patents and be subject to a patent infringement litigation. So that seems like it would make the CPSC ruling kind of dead in the water. Well, I, I'm, 
I, I don't know what's going on with the CPSC, but the fact that we are now in 2014, when the petition was filed by gas in 2003, and the CPSC tested his prototype in 2001, uh, tells me that that there is a reason why they have not moved on this, and it's it it's obviously political. Uh, the, the purpose of the CPSC is not to hand out government monopolies. Yeah. Well, we've got one other guy on the mic here. He's Ed Pernick. He usually um, uh, uh, he's the host of the show, and he's going to jump in with a quick question. I just want to say that if you put him on the spot, he might also plead ignorance, just like I did just a minute ago. That's our style Lisa, on the that's, show. That's no excuse. Whenever, whenever, whenever we get put on the spot by each other, we just plead ignorance. So you can feel free to do that too, John, if you'd like. I'm not ignorant. I know everything. Okay, go ahead, Ed. Uh, John, I'm just curious as to the specifics of what happened to the individual uh, in this case who was using the saw. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a very serious accident. Uh, he was a young cabinet maker. He was uh, almost 30 years old at the time. He had been using table saw since he was 12. Uh, he had been trained uh, in shop class in high school to use the use the three-in-one guarding system. Uh, but in his professional capacity, he, he generally did not use the three-in-one guarding system. He uh, had uh, previous rigid uh, table saws, and then he uh, wanted to start a cabinet-making uh, business. He considered buying a saw-stop saw, uh, uh, but at the time it was too expensive. Uh, you, you know that in 2004... Uh, SawStop brought their first uh, table saw on the market, a cabinet saw, sure. cost about $3,000. And then in 2008, they brought out the, the contractor saw, which starts at, at $1,600. Uh, uh, so he bought this TS3660 in May of 2008 and paid about 550 bucks for it. And it's a very good saw. Sure, it's got features of of the quick on off that is now in the in the seventh edition modular guarding. But it was a three in one guard, so he built an outfeed table for his uh, his table saw, and because it interfered, uh, the the guarding system interfered with his outfeed table, he took the guard off uh, of his saw. Okay, yeah, and uh, he was cutting a, a two foot by three foot. Uh, three-quarter inch cherry wood panel and he had cut two of them previously and no problem he cut the third one and he, he testified that as he was going to turn the saw off he noticed out of the corner of his eye that the panel was starting to fall off of his outfeed table so he uh, reached to grab the 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 panel that was falling and uh, put his uh, forearm and elbow right into the unguarded blade okay well that that's that's interesting because I mean I, th I think that's one of the the cardinal rules that we learn about when using a table saw is not to reach over the blade. Um, the well, other the outfeed table was another problem because when he described the outfeed table to us, it turns out that he didn't have full coverage of the right side of the mm -hmm. blade to the full capacity of the table saw. There's a 36 inch capacity on the right side For of sure. the blade, yep. and his outfeed table only covered about half of that. Yeah, with, 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 with no explanation as to why. Yeah, that's one of the really tricky things with this. There's many issues that sort of float around here around this, this topic. It's uh, a little bit 
uh, mind-boggling. You know, if you're, if you're going to have a proper outfeed table, it's got to support the work that you're cutting. Well, what you're getting into is sort of user error slash user training. And so it you can make, you can fabricate an outfeed table that works around any guarding system. It's possible. All you have to do is notch the table. If right. You take a notch and notch right. it out and leave the guard on. Right. And in the Carlos Osorio case, it was the user error was even more egregious. Yeah, because you're, you're the freehand cutting on the, on the floor with, the, with no uh, uh, miter gauge and no fence and Right. He had no guidance for a panel, no. and he's doing no. a rip cut as if he's using a bandsaw. And, of course, it went kaplooey on him. So, um, Same that... thing as Stallings. I mean, Stallings was a, a very similar to Osario. Right. And then the other, and, you know, that's just the way things are in the U.S. I mean, people can set up and hang up their shingle as a contractor or a carpenter or a furniture maker or whatever it is with no formalized training and, uh, it's a little different in Europe, where I think there's actual in most countries there's governmental rules that well, say yeah, that you got, have you've to. You've got OSHA in this country, and OSHA can uh, requires the three-in-one guarding system, and they they can criminalize uh, uh, behavior if you if you're an employer and you're not uh, enforcing uh, the use of the three-in-one guarding system, you could you could uh, face uh, OSHA uh, penalties for that. So then it's not. It's clearly not enforced because you can go on any job site anywhere in the and, U.S. And, and you, you will find that they're they're not using the guarding system. I, the, I know that. The other trick, the other tricky thing before we let you go is that um, there's still the outstanding question about whether or not the saw stop blade breaking technology will work in in a, in a more affordable saw. Like as you mentioned, they got down to the sixteen hundred dollar level, fifteen hundred dollar level. They've never brought a benchtop uh, uh, product to the market. No, and and they've uh they they're working on it they tell me and i have no reason to believe well, they've, been, they, they've been telling us that they're going to bring it out at year's end for the last four years it's true so you can only um i get one can only surmise that um there's either a price point or an engineering problem going on where it's either going to be it's either too expensive to make it work or uh, the engineering just isn't working, and the you know there's a lot of force at play. And anyway, we oh, when when and to engineer a saw uh, that can handle that uh, must be a trick, especially when you're trying to make it actually portable and affordable, so you don't uh, so you know job site guys will actually buy it and et cetera. But anyway, so well, you know about the joint venture. PTI had a joint venture guarding committee to come up with a uh, a, a way of providing. Uh, uh, accident avoidance technology. They first looked at proximity sensing, uh, hired a, uh, a high-tech firm out of the Silicon Valley, uh, Stanford uh, physicists. This is uh, back when gas first... Come up with, when gas they weren't first... able to come up with a proximity sensing system. So then they went to contact sensing, much like the SawStop technology, right. and they came up with a, a system that does not uh, do as the SawStop does by pushing a, a, a break into the teeth of the blade, they drop the, the blade below the table. Yep. And, and so you don't have to replace the blade when there's an activation, and you don't have to replace a $75 brake cartridge. Yep. Uh, you, 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 rep- you replace a, a, a charge uh, that activates the system, and that's it. Uh, you're, you're talking about, about 10 bucks if you get an activation. Right. But they're, they're, none of the manufacturers are willing to bring it to the market because of the patent infringement uh, threat. Right. The patents are, the, the saw stop patents, you're saying they're written too broadly? 
I mean, they're oh, in oh, so broadly that yeah, you yeah. can't bring something like that to the market. Well, these are all the issues that are floating around, and the fact it and we'll keep covering it on an ongoing basis. And we really appreciate uh, you spending so much time with us and and uh, filling in some of the details. Well, I mean, it, it forces us to think about uh, safety and and what level of safety uh, are we looking for, and at what cost? Yeah. You know, one of the analogies we used that in, in this last trial was the Ebola crisis and and the the suit that you have to wear if you want to be a healthcare worker dealing with Ebola. Yep. It's, I mean, I, I, I don't want to wear the suit because it's too confining. It's, I'm, I get hot and I'm sweating in it. Yeah. So, you know, whose fault is that? Is that, is that the manufacturer's fault? Right. So will you be uh, uh, handling more cases like this? Are you defending other... Uh, I have been trying product liability cases for over 40 years. Mm-hmm. And do you have I, any I, other I've, I've defenses got, pending? Well, uh, you know, oh, these... yeah, we've got we've got a we've got a lot of these cases pending in the Midwest. That we're, we're regional counsel for Ryobi in mm-hmm. the in the Midwest, and we've got we've got a lot of these cases. Which way do you see it going? Uh, do you think there'll be more verdicts like the one you just had, or do you think that uh, well, we're hoping we're hoping uh, for that because I, I think that we have we have done what the law requires us to do. That doesn't mean that you can't be injured with that product. Right. And then you have you, to convince we, we a jury. Can, we can comply with every safety requirement there is, but that doesn't mean that you can't use that table saw and not be injured. A table saw is a dangerous uh, a product. Absolutely. So, and it's got uh, to be handled with respect. You've got to respect that, 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 that rotating blade. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's the most dangerous tool in the shop, no doubt about it. Well, we'd love to have you on again, and uh, we thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. Okay. Thanks, So John. that's John Bell. Okay. And, and one of the things that John Bell uh, sort of said that this case hinged on was the duty of a manufacturer, uh, which is to produce a product that is neither defective nor unreasonably dangerous. Uh, so the manufacturers don't have a duty to make their products safer. Um, the, the, where they're at right now is fine as long as they've manufactured a product under current guidelines that's neither uh, defective nor unreasonably dangerous. According to the law. According they, to the law. They could be fine if it's deemed to be right. that. Now, um, SawStop is always in the background here um, because you could make a safer saw a la SawStop, but that opens up a whole other host of issues. So we figured we've got to get Steve Gass on here. Yeah, and also John Bell mentioned him. For sure, and he's been called as a witness in in a number of these cases, maybe not this one specifically, um, but but his technology is always in the background, and it's and it launched, you know, it's behind the very first case that launched the rest of these cases. And as you'll see, it's related. A lot of the questions that rise up, they need an answer from the SawStop side. Before, before we get to the interview, Steve Gass, I just want to point out, you know, I know this is going to be completely... <laughs> <laughs> I just Non-sequitur. Like, I, I like the idea that a product could be reasonably dangerous. Because they say it can't be unreasonably dangerous. Oh, God, Dr. Yes. Penny. it can be reasonably well, dangerous. Well, that's your car. This is Dr. Right? Penny coming out. It's a steak knife, you know. I just, I like that. Anyways, let's go on. A All steak right. knife is not unreasonably dangerous. Right. It's reasonably dangerous. Right. <laughs> right. Well, here he is, SawStop inventor, Dr. Stephen Gass. Coming on our humble little round table. Very humble. Very humble. Uh, now, now before you're very welcome. 
before we dive into the minutia of, uh, of this issue, um, I picture, are you in your office right now? I am. Okay. I picture your office having a mini fridge chock full of hot dogs for all manner of saw stop testing, and I'm wondering if there's any truth to that. <laughs> what makes you think it's a mini fridge? It's, uh, there you go. Okay. Question answered. Touche. <laughs> um, so I, I think uh, to get things started, I think it's probably safe to say that uh, saw stop, that technology was probably one of the biggest uh, success stories in woodworking machinery in a long time. And I was wondering, you know, for the folks who are listening to the podcast, if you could sort of take us back uh, memory lane uh, regarding how the, how the technology came into being. Sure. It, you know, the, I, I sometimes sort of describe it as, uh, the, you know, the idea that ate my life. <laughs> I've, you know, I've been a woodworker my whole life. I've, uh, you know, my first memories are literally in my dad's shop. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, I uh, suffered an injury on a, injury on a joiner uh, at four years of age uh, as I was rolling the cutter head with my thumb and holding the switch halfway on, pretending that it was running. Of course, the, the switch uh, went slightly more than halfway on and, and uh, took out a good-sized chunk out of the inside of my thumb. Um, but, Ouch. So, I, you know, I, I, I come by my need for safety equipment naturally. <laughs> okay. I'd but like to anyway, talk to your was, dad about his open-door shop policy. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was from a different generation. It was more about yep. survival of the fittest. It was. It that. really was. We talk about that a lot. Like, when we were all younger, like, you were just sent outside to play. There were hammers and nails, and we were making things in the woods, and it was a, it was a different time. Tetanus was involved? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, I was just out in my shop, and, and the idea kind of came to me. I wonder if... Uh, if you could stop the blade fast enough so that you wouldn't get a serious injury uh, if, uh, if you ran your hand into it. And, uh, you know, I, uh, now I happen to have a doctorate in physics, so that came in handy, and I was able to kind of do some calculations to see whether it was something that seemed like it was uh, within the realm of possibility. And sure enough, it did. Uh, and so I then got a used Craftsman table saw off of the, the classified ads at the time, and uh, built prototype, and kind of the, uh, the rest is history in some sense. Out, out of idle curiosity, how long did it take to assemble, like, you know, the basement prototype? Probably about 30 days. Uh, it, it, you know, the technology at, a, at, a, at that level is, is really very simple. I mean, you're talking sort of a spring and a, and a little, you know, a brake pole. The first one I used I actually made out of a piece of oak. Uh, that I, you know, uh, uh, drilled a bolt into the uh, casting, the trunnion casting on that saw, to, and used the bolt as a pivot axle. Uh, and then a, the spring I used was a nose gear from one of my radio control airplanes, and the, and the release uh, is a uh, uh, essentially a mechanical fuse wire that is melted by a surge of current, and that was just a strand of a piece of, uh, of a cable that I happened to have in the shop uh, that I you know, was looking for a small piece of wire that I thought I could melt. Uh, and you know, so it, it really was, uh, you know, the, the technology fundamentally is, is, is very simple. Now, you know, when you actually implement it commercially, you have to go to a lot of trouble to make sure it's going to work reliably, obviously. Sure. So it becomes much more sophisticated at that at that level, but the, the sort of, you know, sort of proof of concept prototype to show that it could work 
literally was, you know, probably less than a month. Uh, and, I mean, I, you know, I still have the video. You can do the hot dog. In fact, I did the hot dog demonstration with that first prototype, and it essentially doesn't look any different than what we do today. Yeah. Now, the, the first prototype didn't have the blade, the whole arbor assembly dropping down below the, and dropping the blade out of sight, right? That's right. Yeah, the first one just stopped the blade. Right. And uh, that, that idea of a, of a flash of heavy current going through some kind of a tripwire and the, and the little blade break being spring-loaded, and all you have to do then is just trip a release and the spring kicks into action, is that basically how the modern saw stop still works? It is, absolutely. It's, it virtually is the same kind of technology that, you know, we use a, uh, it's not a nose gear from a radio control airplane anymore, uh, but it's a, you know, I 144. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, we get a good deal on them, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a 144-pound die spring uh, that's a very standard part uh, you can buy out of, you know, uh, various mechanical catalogs. And um, the fuse wire is a 10,000 diameter stainless steel wire. And now, uh, at the time, I used a, uh, the fuse wire held the spring back directly now we actually have a little lever pin to give us the mechanical advantage in between uh, so right. that we can get a little more force. Uh, but, but essentially, it's the exact same concept. Got it. All right, so we've got, we've got the basic background about where the technology came from, and now I, I want to move into the, the case in question. So the, to put things into perspective, we've got a, a, case out of, uh, a court case out of Duluth uh, where a cabinet maker by the name of Adam Thulk, he cut his forearm while reaching over a spinning blade to grab a panel that was falling off the outfeed. So one of the topics that John Bell, the lead trial attorney, went into was this idea of uh, the, quote, duty of a manufacturer, end quote, uh, to produce a product that's uh, neither defective nor unreasonably dangerous. Uh, SawStop has a very unique bit of technology within it for accident avoidance, and I'm wondering, you know, where does that leave the products put out by other manufacturers? Are all the other guys... You know, how do we classify all the other table saws on the market when we talk about that legal standard for something that is uh, neither defective nor unreasonably dangerous? Yeah, so I think it comes down to kind of first understanding what's meant by defective. I mean, right. obviously, you know, all the table saws on the market will cut wood and do a fine job at it. Uh, you know, some offer certain features or others, but basically they do that job quite effectively. Uh, so, you know, they're not defective in the sense that they don't do what they're sold to do. Uh, but, you know, my understanding of the law, and it varies a little bit from state to state exactly what factors, but basically uh, my understanding of defective, uh, I think, uh, is, is probably the, the, the most um, maybe general uh, sort of common thread is that um, it, it's sort of an economic test of, is there something that could be done that would prevent the injuries for less than the injuries cost? Which, which, so right, which words, is like the formula that a lot of auto companies have gone through. Um, basically, it's very similar. Like they could put, uh, just to flesh it out a little bit, they could put sort of NASCAR-level roll cages in cars, which might be cost prohibitive, but for much less money, they could put airbags in. So they have been mandated to put airbags in. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So, and, and you can do this calculus. Uh, you know, I mean, that's part of what the Consumer Product Safety Commission does. You know, they, they study injuries, and they've estimated that the cost of injuries on table saws is about $2 billion a year. 
every year. And part of that now, is a drain on, I would imagine, on uh, municipal hospitals and whatnot for folks who can't uh, necessarily afford to pay for all those follow-up well, surgeries. Well, that'll be a component of the cost, but the, the cost actually doesn't matter whether insurance pays it or Medicare or, sure. you know, OSHA, or not OSHA, but your workers' comp. Right. It, it's, it's really a question of how much do these injuries cost society independent of who's actually paying for it, although that uh, is important in terms of the incentives it creates. Uh, but basically, uh, they sort of add up what are all, what's the cost to treat all these injuries, mm-hmm. what's the recovery time, what's the lost productivity, um, what, uh, the, you know, what's the pain and suffering uh, worth, and that's a large component of it. Uh, but anyway, you're talking, you know, their estimate was something like $2 billion a year. Okay. But to put that in context, that's probably somewhere between five and ten times the entire sales volume for table saws every year. Got it. So there's an imbalance there. There's a huge imbalance. So if you can come up with something, if there's a technology out there that will prevent those injuries, uh, prevent that $2 billion in cost, and it costs less than $2 billion a year, then, you know, at least arguably at that point, uh, a product that doesn't incorporate that kind of feature becomes defective because it, there is something available uh, that would have uh, eliminated the injuries at less cost than the injuries themselves are. So on that note, you have some kind of cool news to share with everybody today, and I think it's related to exactly what you're talking about. Um, you've been working on a job site. You know, If people know the saw stop story, they know that you started with a full-size cabinet saw, which made sense. You got the big, heavy guts there to handle all the forces in play. Um, and you rolled that out at the price of about the price of a of a high end high quality cabinet saw, um, which was an amazing feat and really was a huge part of this. It has been a huge part of the saw stop story. And then you came out with a sort of what we would call sort of more of a hybrid or a contractor's level saw for about fifteen hundred bucks. So that made the saw stop technology a lot more affordable to folks. And for a long time, you've been working on trying to come up with something that was truly portable um, to get the technology uh, to work in something that was really portable. And you've also tried to come up with a portable saw that would be as good a saw as your other models. You don't want it to just be uh, just have the saw stop blade breaking, but you also want it to be as excellent a table saw in general as your other models have been, and they've been great in our tests. So I think you're ready to announce that... Uh, that that uh, portable job site saw is ready to uh, is coming to market. Uh, we are. That's right. We're bringing the, that out uh, at uh, at long last. It took longer than we expected. Uh, although, interestingly, not from a not from a saw stop technology standpoint, but from the standpoint of all of the other unique features that we designed into it. One of the things we try and do at saw stop is really bring out products that have features that are new and different than what's uh, out there already. So when we brought out our cabinet saw, for instance, the original one, we incorporated a riving knife when, you know, no one else was doing that in, on, on U.S. saws. Uh, and we uh, made it a quick change so that you could, you know, there's just a lever in there you could pop up, and it was all aligned uh, when you dropped it back in. Um, so on our job site saw, uh, we uh, have uh, quite a number of really unique features that I think uh, – uh, woodworkers would really appreciate. Uh, my, my personal favorite is the what I call the one-turn elevation. Uh, for uh, any of the listeners that have uh, used a traditional job site saw, or really almost any table saw, 
but particularly the smaller benchtop units, when you want to raise or lower the blade, the gear reduction in there is such that you have to crank that little handle probably anywhere between about 30 and 45 times to raise or lower the blade. On, on our saw, we came up with a, what I think is kind of an ingenious little mechanism that allows you to do that with a simple one turn of the elevation handle. So wow, so one, one time turn. around and you get the full blade height out of that? Yep, and one turn back and you get the full blade height the other direction. Uh, so it's very, very fast and easy to, to operate. Um, and it's counterbalanced, so it's a very, you know, e at a low force, you know, it's just uh, a really, really nice system. Now, what uh, about the, the... Good. I was going to say the tilt system on it, uh, rather than uh, having some clamp you have to release and then, you know, move over, we just have a, a grip there that you squeeze, uh, and when you squeeze that, it releases a gear that allows you to to rotate the or tilt the saw over, uh, and it's indexed at one degree increments. So you can just you know if you want 17 degrees, just squeeze it, slide it over to 17, and release, and it automatically indexes in. Yeah, we're now, looking we're looking forward to testing that saw. I have a question though about. Um, you must be confident then that it's robust enough to sort of rattle around the back of pickup trucks and get some rain on it and and uh, get, you know, the pretty hard scrabble life of a true contractor saw, a job site saw, and still uh, be able to do its job and the electronics will stand up and the mechanisms will, the blade breaking will, is robust enough to, in the frame and the chassis, all of that is robust enough to handle the life of a job site saw? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, the, the, fortunately, the, uh, for the reasons we discussed before, the technology is fairly simple. Uh, and it's, uh, in, in our saw in particular, it's all essentially incorporated into the brake cartridge. Uh, and so it's uh, all kind of sealed inside the, the saw. So, you know, while we don't recommend anyone uh, use uh, our saw in the rain any more than uh, we'd recommend you use any uh, line-powered electrical device out in the in the rain, uh, it you know if you have some incidental uh, rain on it or something, that's uh, not going to hurt anything. What what about uh, the potential for trips in uh, something like you know a piece of a sheet of plywood that's been sitting out for a couple of days? I mean, it's not soaking wet, but it's you know it's certainly got a higher moisture content than kiln dried lumber. Lumber. Yeah, in general, uh, that's not a not an issue. Uh, the uh, wood when it gets wet uh, is uh, more conductive than dry wood, but not uh, like salty flesh, because uh, okay. uh, it doesn't have uh, anything to increase the conductivity. Uh, so in general, that's not an issue. Now, in, in extreme cases, potentially, um, and like on our other saws, if uh, we do incorporate a bypass, so if you need to cut something that's uh, uh, going to be conductive, yeah. you can do that. If you ever start like a little... Uh, you know, three-piece, like, electric guitar band with your friends, I would suggest Salty Flesh as a good uh, band name for you guys. I'm just saying. Just throwing that out there. That's a freebie. So um, I actually have a question. Uh, I want to get to the price of it because we've all been sort of waiting to see what the price would be. Uh, but go ahead. Do you have a general sense of what, um, where you're going to be able to roll this out price point-wise? Yeah, I think we're expecting it to, to retail at twelve ninety nine. And the reason I put an emphasis on that is because it gets to that point you were making a minute ago um, about, you know, how much more, you know, the economic factor of, what, of whether or not, you know, some sort of blade breaking technology or accident avoidance technology like this, um, 
you know, should be mandated or whether or not saws that don't have it are defective or unreasonably dangerous. It, there's an economic factor. And so some folks are going to argue that you weren't able to bring out a saw that's anywhere close to the $400 job site saws that 90% of people are using in this country. Um, and so therefore, you know, that's asking a lot of every carpenter and, you know, some of these little mom and pop one guy businesses all over the country to, if, if they sort of had to buy a saw that's, uh, uh, 1400 or $1,300. Yeah. So our saw though is a very different uh, one. It's a, it's a, it's a very different saw. So you're talking about something that is, uh, kind of at the very, uh, you know, really above the upper end of current cabinet saws and, or current, uh, job site saws in terms of, of features. Now, the closest equivalence would probably be the kind of $600 job site saws that are the, the larger ones on the mobile. Right. More, true. Good point. More like the Bosch or something like that. Yeah. And that's, yep. uh, and that's sort of where we're size-wise and weight-wise uh, uh, where this is targeted. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, the fact that of where we uh, price our products really doesn't have uh, – you can't sort of directly correlate that to what the same product would be if it came from – uh, you know, one of the major uh, sellers sure. who has, you know, is selling 100,000 units a year. Uh, we have a very different business model. We uh, sell very premium products that are uh, offer very premium features at a premium price. Uh, yeah. You know, we think people get what they pay for in that regard, but, you know, it's a little like Festool. You know, you're not the, the, the same people buying that aren't necessarily in the market for, you know, the cheapest um, Harbor Freight uh, tools. It, it makes that makes perfect sense in the marketplace and and how you would want to run a business and and how and what it costs for you guys to make products that really stand out the way your products do that all makes perfect sense but it also I just don't want to miss the point that um, it it also remains to be seen though whether someone can make a job site saw for anything close to the price that current job site saws are available at. Or you know, basically, yours is more than double those. So it, it remains to be proven whether and you know how how much more it's going to cost for the most common type of saw to incorporate this sort of accident avoidance technology in it. Yeah, at some level, you know, and until the product is actually on the market, uh, uh, you know, it, it it it's still subject to some question. But I think it's a fairly simple matter to kind of look at the saw itself and analyze, well, what is it that's different about this saw to incorporate saw stop, and how much cost did that add? And when you do that to our job site saw, you're probably talking at, you know, something on the order of 50 or $75 of manufacturing cost to was, add saw stop. Was part of, did you have, was there debate within your company at all about, you know, proving the thing I'm talking about? Like, what was there... You know, because I could see you might have some incentive to try to prove to everybody that that $75 figure is really real and come up with a $700 version of a job site saw that's got blade breaking. That would really calm down a lot of the debate about uh, whether this is an airbag or a roll cage. Yeah, well, you know, we have to kind of look at it from a business standpoint. While that sure. might be a satisfying uh, outcome for me personally, uh, you know, just from a sort of, uh, uh, you know, proving the naysayers wrong, uh, 
you know, we have to run our business in, in the, you know, the best way we can, and it doesn't make any difference to our business whether we prove uh, that or don't. Uh, you know, what we uh, have to do as a business is offer the products that we think uh, will be in the most demand uh, and generate the most return for us and fit within our business model. Well, you know, we don't have, you know, unlike, say, you know, uh, Black & Decker or Bosch or, you know, Ryobi, we don't have a, an outlet channel at the mass market uh, like they do. And so it doesn't make sense for us to uh, target products at that level uh, like they would. Uh, so we just we have a very different uh, distribution model, uh, and we have a very different margin structure than, than those guys would. If they were selling this same saw at our production cost, they would probably be selling it for about, you know, maybe $800. Uh, because they have different costs, uh, and they spread it out over uh, different uh, numbers of saws. So, it, you know, for us, uh, you know, we pick the products we're uh, making and, and run our business to, to you know, uh, maximize the business, yeah. not to prove an abstract concept of whether something is economically justified or not. That doesn't have any, any benefit to us at the end of the day. That. I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. That 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 uh, that does make sense. Uh, Steve, you're you're in a bit of a, a tough position in that you've developed this piece of technology. You have a duty to your company to protect its intellectual property. You've been an expert witness in a lot of liability cases. You've dealt with the CPSC regarding you know all their information gathering on uh, potential mandates and whatnot. Yet yours is the only game in town when it comes to this accident avoidance technology, at least for now. Um, you guys have done a good job at protecting your invention via patents and all that. How do you, and here's a tough question, I have to play the devil's advocate, how do you respond to critics who would argue that you've got an interest in, in those potential table saw mandates? Well, I, I, I guess I, I would say, so what? Uh, I, I may or may not have. I think we could, we could argue that point. Because right now, you know, with where our business is and the growth and, and what I anticipate happening going forward, you know, from a business standpoint, I really don't have any desire to license the industry at this point. Uh, you know, a long time ago, especially before we had saws, that was definitely... That was your original plan, right? You were going to, you wanted to license the technology, but then you went into making saws. That's right. We were sort of forced to do that because the manufacturers weren't interested in the technology. Uh, and so it was either, you know, abandon it or, or build our own saws. Uh, and once we did that, and, you know, they were very successful, and the company's been very profitable and grown well, uh, and our customers have been very happy with, uh, the, with their saws, and, the, you know, particularly the, what, you know, 26, 2,700 people who've now run their fingers into the blade and come away with minor injuries, uh, you know, that, that's uh, a pretty good selling feature. Um, now, but at this point, from a business standpoint, we really don't have any incentive to, to license uh, people to compete with us. Right. right. Yep. Now, sp uh, speaking of the CPSC, several years ago... Consumer Product Safety Commission. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Uh, several years ago, they issued a, like a notification of a pending ruling. In effect, they were looking for comments from interested parties regarding possible table saw uh, safety mandates. And that that whole process definitely... Uh, seems to have stalled, and I mean, do you think could it could part of that stalling be a result of 
the patents that SawStop holds, making it you know very difficult for the government to issue any sort of mandate when you know you guys have the technology protected. Um, you know, most people would say rightfully so. Um, so then, how can the government mandate safety mandates when there's a there's a clash there? Well, without granting you SawStop a monopoly right. on table saws. Well, I guess at first you have to look at what would. Uh, well, let me let me back up a little bit. So on the on the CPSC side. I think they are still moving forward. We don't have any active role in that. We're not doing any lobbying or anything. Uh, right. you know, we've essentially uh, uh, abandoned those efforts. Uh, we're, you know, uh, selling our saws, and we think that's the best thing we can do to protect people. Um, the CPSC process, I think, continues. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately kind of a glacially slow process. Uh, I think, unfortunately, from the standpoint of, of users of table saws, I think all indications are they're still planning to move forward. Uh, UL, uh, which is Underwriters Laboratories, who uh, also creates standards for table saws, um, sort of in cooperation with the manufacturers, uh, has uh, begun an effort to uh, potentially create a mandate for table saws to include what I will call generically active injury mitigation technology. Right. And SawStop is really just one version of active injury mitigation technology. It's not, uh, you know, the, the standards that people would look at either at UL or at the CPSC would be what would be called performance standards. That is, they would not say how you have to do something. They wouldn't uh, say you have to put saw stop on your table saw. They would say your saw has to do something to prevent injury in the event of contact or dangerous proximity with the blade. And the performance aspect of that would be, for instance, if the hand approaches the blade at a foot per second, it shouldn't get a uh, cut of anything more than an eighth of an inch, uh, or no more than an eighth of an inch. And so if you meet that performance standard, it doesn't matter how you do it. It's, it could be soft stop system or it could be some other uh, system, as long as you meet that performance standard. And so I don't think the patents have a significant impact on the CPSC one way or the other. Uh, they uh, uh, they won't uh, they're not going to be in the position uh, of mandating that someone use our patents or use our patented technology. They would simply say saws have to have something uh, and leave it up to the market to develop whatever solutions uh, suit the market best. It's really an interesting conundrum because, and it's one that sort of we've been pondering for a long time and. I just had a little moment of clarity. I don't know. It's working for me, but I don't know if it'll work for anyone else who's listening. But it's sort of like um, I, I totally get what you're saying. You know, they uh, look at performance standards. So they're any kind of uh, system that would, you know, mitigate your hand uh, going up and running into the teeth of the blade would be would could meet the performance standard, and you can. And, and I know that, and I know, uh, you know, from talking to various table saw companies that they've tried all sorts of things. There's been proximity sensors. Um, they're sort of like what you're describing. There's thing worth how fast your hand is moving toward the blade. But all of those, none, none of those might be actual, actually feasible in the real world um, in terms of, you know, being be able to roll it out at any kind of a price point people could afford or have it be robust um, and pretty, you know, sort of bomb-proof to last in people's shops for 30 years. They, 
they it seems like a lot of those have been abandoned by the industry so it you know it's sort of a what if but what if your the the ingenious way that you came up with with oak and a piece of wire that vaporized and a little trip mechanism what if that's the way what if there isn't what if there's not another way to do accident avoidance that's feasible um you know what then do you think that it's possible to uh for someone else to come up with a feasible accident avoidance system i know it's not your job to tell them what to do but <laughs> yeah i'm going to be a little cautious about offering too much in the way of ideas on that front um but I will say you have to also consider the incentive again. The manufacturers uh, that you're talking about don't want to do this technology, this kind of technology. They're happy with the status quo. It doesn't trouble them, apparently, that you know 60,000 people a year are injured on their products. That, that's not a problem for table saw manufacturers. So they don't, uh, they don't have an incentive. You talk about, say, proximity detection or you know, m- measuring the speed of approach. The manufacturers don't have a big incentive to develop such a system because if they did and then they wanted to put it on their products, well, or they were going to put it on their products, that they would have to see that as something that was a good thing. And they didn't see that as a good thing. You mean uh, you know, When I originally approached the manufacturers, uh, the president of, of one of the major manufacturers came out and visited us. And he said, you have to understand, you guys have created a big problem here. And now you're trying to sell us an expensive solution. And I was sort of flabbergasted. It was like, my God, you see the existence of this technology as a problem, not a solution? You know, what about the you know, thousands and thousands of people who are maimed every year using your products? Isn't that the problem? But that's not how they see it. That's well, not the how same, the same, to be it. fair, the same argument could be made for... Roll cages, you know, you could say the same thing. Roll cages would save hundreds of thousands of lives, but they're not mandated on in cars, you know, uh, you know, sort of NASCAR level and NASCAR level head restraints and the rest of it, the way a driver is put in in a race car, for example, that would save many thousands of lives. But the story is never that simple. There's sort of an economic factor of whether or not this can be done in the marketplace. It's a, it's a, well, wouldn't let yeah. me let me bump in here. Wouldn't this be? Wouldn't the issue possibly be that uh, manufacturers would potentially be afraid of instituting this sort of technology in their own machinery because then all of the the pre technology machinery would potentially be seemed you know be deemed very unsafe. Um, and then you know the fact that we live in a very litigious society that's going to open them up to a whole heap of more liability lawsuits because everything before they came out with this technology is going to be super unsafe. Um, they've well, got a legacy of, of, of uh, tools out, tooling out there. Just a few, you know, the, it's a, these are all thorny questions. We don't mean They're to tough. hit you with all of these, but just, uh, yeah, what Ed and I, there's a couple questions buried in there. Well, I think in general, the, the, they're, uh, under the law, there's sort of this uh, exception for your prior products. So if you develop some new technology, that generally can't be used to prove that your old products weren't. Uh, So manufacturers generally don't have a big problem there. I think what was more of a problem with the advent of saw-stop technology was how do you sort of phase it in? Um, You know, so you because you're, you know, if you're a saw manufacturer and you have, you know, uh, ten different saws in your line, 
you, you know, you, with new technology, you probably want to put it on one first. Uh, but which one? <laughs> and and once you've put it on one, what about the other nine that you aren't putting it on? So it's it's not so much that you have a problem with your legacy saws that were done before the technology was created. It's really a, I think, from a legal standpoint, uh, as I understand it, it's more of an issue of, of what about the ones going forward? Uh, and, and how do you just, as a practical matter, how do you put it on all your products at once? And, well, you put it on all your table saws, but now what about your handheld circular saws? Uh, and what about your miter saws? Why didn't you put it on those? Right. And so it, it does open a Pandora's box. And so I have some sympathy for the complexities that creates for manufacturers. But I think that doesn't excuse them from the obligation to make their products uh, reasonably safe. And by reasonably safe, I mean uh, use technology that is economically justified to protect customers. Uh, and I think this kind of technology, SawStop technology in particular, is clearly economically uh, justified. It's, it, uh, if, it, if it doubled the cost, you know, let's assume... That the, that the pricing structure that we're talking about with a job site saw is actually would be the same if manufacturers adopted the technology generally. Uh, and let's say it doubled the price of, of every table saw. That still, you end up as a society, we end up better off having doubled the price of table saws and eliminated $2 billion a year in economic costs from the injury. Uh, and so that, to me, is sort of the kind of the definition of what makes a reasonably safe technology. It ha- it, it, that's an excellent answer. It ha- it's got to be another conundrum sort of that they face now, which is um, what, yeah, whether or not they have the incentive to do it. That's a really good question that, that you bring up, the economic incentive to uh, actually want to do this and less forced to do it. Um, but even if they, let's say they were forced to do it, that's got to be frightening. I, if I were a table saw manufacturer, I'd be a little scared about that, being forced to do it, because I wonder if, I mean, do you think it can be done without violating your patents? You know, some sort of, uh, um, like you say, accident mitigation, something, some sort of thing that keeps your hand away from the blade beyond the blade cover that's on table saws. My best guess is that there are other solutions. What I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't know sort of the, because uh, I haven't investigated them in enough detail uh, of, of how economical they'll be. I mean, right. SawStop has a lot of advantages. It's a very simple system. It's, uh, it, and, and maybe most significantly, it's proven at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, there's uh, a lot of advantage on that, uh, on that front. But I, I'm sure there are other technological solutions out there uh, that could achieve the same end. The really, the question, you know, you're talking about pretty small dollar amounts in terms of the, uh, the technology, you know, as I say, you know, 50 to $75. I mean, in order to be, uh, you know, to sort of beat that, you have to, or even to, you know, to uh, um, compete with that, you can't, you, can't come up, you can't come up with a $500 solution. Right. Because uh, that, that's... In, probably not competitively viable. Right, uh, right. So and that, that's kind of what I'm talking about. That's the tricky thing for them is uh, they're, they're in another... If, if things stay as they are, you know, everything's fine. They, you know, in, just in the sense that they can continue to make uh, the saws they're making, which have a much improved guarding system on them, which if you keep it in place is much better than what was on there 20 years ago. 
and you can continue making a saw that's safer at, at a slight at a something of a premium, and that's all fine and good. Where it gets tricky is if through the courts or through the CPSC or whatever, if uh, suddenly um, your something akin to what you're doing is mandated, then it gets. I could see it gets very tricky for the other table saw manufacturers. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. All right. Yep. All right. Wait yep a minute. Is kind of the. I, I wanna, yep's kind of the answer. <laughs> I want to wrap this up with a a tastier question, uh, which is sure. timetable. Well, tastier not meaning hot dog involvement, but uh, timetable for the job site saw. What are we looking at? I think in the next month or two we should have those out to dealers. Uh, the sales and marketing folks may yell at me for saying that, but uh, but that's my best guess uh, as, at our at our current plans. Uh, we're building up inventory, uh, and we want to have enough on hand where we can, uh, you know, ship them out to a reasonable number of people uh, when when we first announce it, uh, you know, sort of for general consumption like that. So uh, we're, you know, very, very shortly. All right. How, mu- how much does, uh, do you know off, this is going to be putting you on the spot, but do you know what the general ballpark is on weight on that saw? Yeah, it's uh, the basic saw itself is, I think, 78 pounds or something. Uh, when you put it on the stand, it's, you know, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think it's a little over 100. Um, but I, you know, it, uh, it's, uh, it, it basically is, you know, be the same size and weight as like a Bosch 4100. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we can't wait to test it. And thanks for coming on and dealing with all these questions. Basically, we're transferring over a lot of the questions that we see that come in through the blogs and the comments. And you've read it all. I mean, I'm sure you're very aware of the questions out there. And so we're just trying to, you know, we've had the attorney on to give his very, you know, uh, his side of, I'll just say his side of things. And then we wanted to make sure that you get, you know, your fair say and everything. Well, I appreciate that, and it was a privilege to, to be able to participate. So, interestingly enough, uh, saw stop technology is very simple. I'm going to go do an easy bake oven right. saw stop in my own basement tonight. Uh, you're going to put a saw stop in your easy bake oven? I'm going to no. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to easy bake a saw stop mechanism into just, my table saw. Because if your finger gets too close to the really hot hot bun, that's it, right. it, it just automatically drops down below it the drops, uh, easy it, bake it, oven. It pulls the incandescent light bulb out really fast. <laughs> right. The story of how simple it really is though i couldn't i could probably put together a real rube goldberg kind of yeah. version of it that wouldn't keep anybody safe mm-hmm. but i could put together a version yeah. of it um i could never do what steve gas did but the fact that you know get it out into the market the way he has but the fact that it is so simple in concept that irritates is, me it's it's brilliant <laughs> it, it, it's what makes it so brilliant well the i mean the the best and viable in the marketplace. I mean, complexity is typically the enemy of uh, brilliance. I mean, the simpler something is, normally the more brilliant and better it works. Complexity mm-hmm. is the enemy of brilliance. Long well, dash, Matt Kenny. <laughs> incidentally, <laughs> while, uh, while I researched the topic for this week's podcast, I came across a Google ad, guys, for, quote, this is at the very top of my Google search regarding something Ed, around table we saw. We really lawsuits. don't need to know about what Google ads are getting. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I think saw, this one's okay to this share. This is a family program. This one's Ed. okay to share. Table saw lawsuit help, colon. Hundreds of table saw lawsuits have been filed so far. Learn more, end quote. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is becoming 
like an industry. An industry well, for where attorneys. there's I'm an not, opportunity, yeah. you're going to get an industry. Now, I'm not talking about attorneys like John Bell. I'm talking about more. I, I have a feeling these are more <laughs> sort of fly-by-night. Right. I, I don't know. chasing attorneys. I'm not ready to pass judgment on different uh, varieties of attorneys. Who was, the, who was the guy on The Simpsons that Phil Hartman played? Uh, Hutzman. Lionel Hutz. Lionel Hutz. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he was not the... Uh, you may remember me from such films as... Yeah, Lionel Hutz never won a case. That's right. Lionel, it's right. I forgot. Lionel Hutz. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, no, but it is... I, I bet you could rig something up like that. And it ticked me off that he said, oh, I was like 30 days in my basement. You know, I had the, the prototype all set up. I was like, oh... Jeez. Well, I, he's the guy with the idea. Not only, you know, it's catching lightning in a bottle. It's like yeah. not only is he the guy with the idea, but he was the guy who knew how to protect it with patents and the guy who knew how to execute it and a guy who also happened to be a woodworker and yeah, I mean, a lot of different things in one body. That's a lot of brilliant things like that, uh, which are so simple. I mean, you know, it said, oh, you know, you could have done that. Well, the truth is, no, you could. None of us here could have done that. I could have done Because we don't have – the reason he could do that was because he had all the ingredients yeah. already there. And so when the opportunity presented itself, he could execute the idea. Whereas now when we hear that, we go, wow, that, we're smart enough to understand that it's simple. But we – are not in a position to execute that idea. Well, I beg to differ. I, I'll have you both know that I have <laughs> built a telegraph machine in my basement for my young nephew. A telegraph machine. Well, That's I, correct. I, Congratulations. <laughs> You're only 60 years behind. <laughs> what, a lucky, what a lucky nephew. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say that we'll continue to cover this story as it makes sense to cover it um, without going ad nauseum. It, we don't get many, uh, you know, sort of, you could call this a controversy. You could. It's a news story. We don't get many true news stories um, that actually have legs like this one. And we don't. It, we have no idea where this is going. We're going to have to watch the court cases and watch what the CPSC does and see what happens to table saws. And that could easily um, uh, spill right over into miter saws and all sorts of other spinning blades in your shop that could have accident mitigation. Yeah, it's that's certainly flesh a- sensing blade breaking. It's only news worthy thing really happening in woodworking it kind of is it, <laughs> kind of, really. it kind of is i mean it got covered on the daily show so yes. when do we ever get covered on the daily show yeah. uh, all right guys because i just had one more thing that oh. sometimes when ed talks oh, to me Kenny. too much i think ed nauseum ed nauseum <laughs> that's, that's right. the new phrase <laughs> ed nauseum i strangely i kind of like that <laughs> <laughs> so listen we get lots of comments on our page in the itunes store and every week we like to acknowledge some of the folks who Leave uh, both kind comments and uh, critical comments. Uh, this week we've got a couple. First one comes from Pete Bergstrom, who wrote, Great podcast. You provide great advice in a fun and informative manner. I spend many hours passing the time while doing other non-woodworking mundane tasks while listening to your banter. Keep up the great work. And from W.N. Aziri, Greatest Woodworking Podcast! Exclamation point. I recently renewed my fine woodworking print subscription. I then realized that I wanted to have online access, which is how I discovered Shop Talk Live. What a great find. While I've learned much from fine woodworking, I find all these podcasts to be chock full of information. I'm in the process of listening to all the episodes, and I'm nearly done. In addition to being informative, all of you guys, including Matt the Philosopher, are really entertaining and humorous. There have been comments on how you need to be serious. Please, please don't change your format. Considering that there's only about four other woodworking podcasts, that's high praise. That's right. That's right. From our 62 listeners. Uh, Anyhow, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on November 28th. 
In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, you know what I'm going to say here, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at tauntoncom T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Welcome to Shop Talk Live, fine woodworking magazine's bi-weekly podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything. I, was doing, I saw it. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs>